In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, do you ever get to feeling kind of down, dejected, and anxious come Sunday evening? People refer to this phenomenon as the Sunday night blues, and it's a common experience. You may have chalked it up to ruining the fact that your fun and restful weekend is over, and you have yet another work week ahead. But my guests would say that your Sunday night sadness may also be rooted in the feeling of regret. The regret you didn't put your weekend to good use, that it wasn't restful and fun, that it was instead busy, draining, and once again, a big letdown. Her name is Katrina Onstad, and she's the author of The Weekend Effect. Today, Katrina shares how the idea of the weekend, of having two back-to-back days off from work, came about, how it's been challenged and subsequently eroded in the modern day. We then talk about how to take back your weekends so that your invaluable Saturdays and Sundays feel more the way they did when you were a kid, filled with a sense of possibility. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is weekend. All right, Katrina Onstad, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you've got a book called The Weekend Effect, and this is all about the benefits of actually enjoying those two days that we get for a weekend and how to make the most of them. Curious, was there a moment in your own life where, of life of weekends, where you realized, man, my weekends, they're not great. I could probably do these better. (laughs) Well, it's, it's, Funny now post COVID, right? Because of course a weekend looked pretty different a few years ago when I wrote this book. So I'll dig back <laughs> into the moment where the, t- the before times. And yeah, I, you know, I was raising two kids, married, very busy work life. And we were packed. Like I think you know, our calendars were like the calendars of a, a CEOs, even though that's not exactly what we did professionally and certainly not what our kids were, but they were scheduled, we were scheduled. And my son on a Sunday night would sort of turn to me every Sunday and say, so is that it? Was that the weekend with this kind of disappointment as if we had withheld something from him? And and it was kind of clear that the pace wasn't changing, that there was nothing kind of in the texture and the tone of the weekends that differentiated those two days from the other five days. And it was a problem. And I was really worried about, you know, losing this time as a family and also about my own rate of burnout, which was palpable. And, you know, a kind of sharpness and unhappiness was emerging that I think often happens with with people in our overwhelmed lives. And I wanted to really take a look at it. So that was kind of the spark for the book. Well, in that comment by your son, like, is, is that it? Was that the weekend? A lot of people experience that. In fact, there's like a f- name for this phenomenon, the Sunday blues, Sunday evening blues. <laughs> yeah, it's actually something that, you know, they've, there's been lots of surveys and research and people will actually report a negative feeling on Sunday night, like a kind of upcoming panic and about the week ahead and also uh, a sense of regret that 
the weekend wasn't what they had hoped it would be. And I think that that's kind of a, a universal feeling. Like we know that it's supposed to be different. We know it's supposed to be set apart. And we remember probably, hopefully from our childhoods, we were lucky enough to have those kinds of weekends where we were free and we were kind of off the clock. And getting back to that feeling or being reminded of that feeling or not having it on a Sunday night is, is something I think we all kind of grieve. Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, I I remember my weekends as a kid compared to as that now as an adult, weekends, they often just feel like any other day, except the kids don't go to school. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that sense of kind of wonder and possibility and bottomless adventure, that Friday feeling you have when you're young, like that's the feeling I think we're all yearning for. Well, let's talk about the history of weekends because I think we take weekends for granted Everyone listening to this podcast has lived in a world where there's always been weekends, unless there's some 120-year-old person listening to this podcast. Um, (laughs) But it's a pretty recent idea that you get two back-to-back days of no work or school. So let's do like a crash course in the development of the weekend. Like, When did we first start seeing this push where you would get some time off at the end of the work week just to do whatever you want? Yeah, well... I mean, it's kind of a fascinating history, and it's not an accident. It's It didn't just happen. People fought, and people actually died for us to have these two days off, to have a reasonable relationship to our work. So really, the idea of time changed with the Industrial Revolution. Okay, let's go, let's go back there, <laughs> where people went from what used to be called task time to clock time, right? So like in, before with work in an agrarian society, like if you'd have three cows to milk, the amount of time that would take you is three cows time, right? But then industrialization takes place and the clock changes time. Time becomes measurable, right? It's the beginning of data, right? So now you have 20 minutes to milk three cows and you're paid for the time, not the task. So time gets commodified. And with the Industrial Revolution, of course, you know, workers' conditions, and we have this Victorian images of Victorian factories with people, you know, starting in the dark and ending in the dark and limitless, limitless amounts of work in the service of these new factories and productivity, 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 right? So organized labor kind of rises up out of that because at the, in the uh, 19th and early 20th century as a response to this mass industrialization and this shifting relationship to time. And we see an era of protest. So the weekend is one of the victories of organized labor. So yeah, fighting for an eight-hour day, that was the very beginning of the labor movement that fought for the weekend. The big event in Haymarket in Chicago in 1836, I hope I'm getting that right, was 76 rather, 30,000 people marched for an eight-hour day. And, you know, bombs went off, police fire, police fired shots, eight people died. There was a court, you know, a massive trial. So like sacrifices were made, like blood was spilled. That was for the eight hour work day. The eight hour work day slid into the two day a week. The idea that people didn't need to work seven days a week and could get two days off back to back. And that, of course, is even farther back, rooted in the Sabbath, right? That that idea that there needed to be one day a week, this kind of edict from God that like people didn't have to be indentured servants to the Pharaoh. That's in the Bible, right? That, you know, the slaves were building granaries for the Pharaoh endlessly and needed a day off. So, you know, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, 
all of these monotheistic religions have one day a week that's that's supposed to be a break, you know, depending on which religion, of course, you know, that, that it's uh, executed in a different ways. But the idea that there's time where to tend to spiritual self, a self outside of work, where one's identity isn't just tied to productivity, but expanded. So, you know, these things have kind of collided to give us those two particular days, the Saturday and the Sunday. But now, of course, things look quite different. Right. Uh, so, okay. So we have Saturday and Sunday. I think that was because there's basically was like, well, Jewish people, they're going to take Saturday off. Christian people, they're going to take Sunday off. So to accommodate, we'll just make it Saturday, Sunday is the weekend. Because there, there was a moment where there was like, yeah. the weekend was like Sunday, Monday. Like Monday was the unofficial second weekend. Like people were supposed to go to work, but they were like, yeah, I'm not doing <laughs> yeah, that. <laughs> I prefer not to. Yeah, it's actually funny. There was a a fake saint invented called Saint Monday. And uh, in England, people would not show up on Monday and they'd say, I am honoring Saint Monday. This is not a real saint. And what they were is probably hungover. And Benjamin Franklin actually wrote <laughs> about that and was very irate about the slovenly Monday holiday takers. So yeah, eventually things kind of reverted and that Monday became part of the work week. But you're right. Like there was a long tradition of people just, if they got this, just the one day off, they made it to anyway. And then also you saw this movement as well after the labor movement where you saw some factory owners or company owners embrace the idea of a weekend because they thought, well, actually our employees are happier and they're more productive when they take those two days off. I think, I mean, Henry Ford is famous for, you know, paying a, a decent wage, but he's also, hey, you don't need to work all the time so you can go enjoy yourself and buy cars. <laughs> and and uh, for <laughs> me, and so they, they saw, they caught on the idea and they 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 really bought into it. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a great example of that shift because it's true. Employers know that workers who are overworked are not great employees. People who are overworked and burnt out introduce more errors into the work that they do. They aren't more productive. And so it benefits workplaces to manage the spread of of work hours. And yeah, Henry Ford realized that. And he needed his employees to not only be working reasonable hours, but to have time off to buy the products that they were making, right? right? So it's like, I mean, it's a kind of tricky dance of capitalism, the idea of the weekend, because it is so tied to consumerism. So yes, on one hand, it's like very altruistic of him and, you know, other business leaders to to give people time off, but also really benefits them to have consumers out in the world. Because when it was just a Sunday, then of course, that's a, a true day for Christians anyway, like a true Sabbath, and you're not supposed to be shopping. So give them the Saturday, they'll go buy the cars. You know, so so you're right, like this is, has been a long kind of evolution to get to where we are now. All right. So we, by the early 20th century, the weekend was established that this is a norm that you do. But then towards the end of the 20th century, you start seeing the weekend wane. So what do the numbers say? Like, you know, how many, like, what's the state of the weekend starting at the end of the 20th century and today? Yeah. Well, so first of all, I would say it's hard to measure. And I think that right now, particularly, and in the last decade, it's getting harder and harder to really understand how much people are working because of the borderlessness of work, right? Because we are so 
literally like our bodies are wired to our workplaces 24 seven. So even if it, we are in an office, maybe now it's a virtual office nine to five ish, you know, most people will probably in particularly in white collar creative class jobs report that they are taking emails and texting outside of that conventional work timeframe. So it's, it's hard, but here's what I think we know, or here was the research that stood when I wrote my book, which was that overall hours have remained pretty steady in North America for about about 30 years, which is around 35 hours a week. But what we see is that educated and high wage earners are working much longer than than 50 years ago. Self-reports suggest some uh, up to half of white collar workers are working 50 hours a week or more, not that 35 hours or more. And then on the service side, we have underemployed and less employed workers. So it kind of averages out to this 35 per week. So are we working more? Are we or are we working less? It depends what the work is. It depends, you know, what kind of work you manage to get. And particularly now in this gig economy, many people in lower paid fields are working several jobs at once, right? And then of course there's the side hustle. So it's a slippery amorphous thing, this question, this question, like how much are we working? We're working a lot. And certainly anecdotally, we hear this all the time that when people are asked to rate the quality of their lives, one of the first things that comes up is concern about being busy. And I think that that has actually endured through COVID, which I find really interesting because there was that moment at the beginning of COVID where I think we all thought, oh, we're going to get a break. Like now we're really going to back away uh, and our quality of life is going to improve so vastly. And I'm not sure that that has borne out. I guess we'll, we'll be finding that out. I hope. So, okay. Everyone, pretty much everyone across the spectrum are, they're doing some type of work on the weekend. If you're in a white collar office job, you might be answering emails Saturday, Sunday, taking care of, you know, things while you're shuttling kids to sports. But then if you're in a service sector job, a lot of that's the stuff like weekend is when you, you're probably working restaurants, movie theaters, yeah. amusement parks, retail, retail, uh, Uber driver. And so the people in service, they might get some days off, but it might not be Saturday, Sunday. It could be Tuesday, Thursday. So it's like, so there's like a, like, so there's an asynchrony going on with weekends with, in our, in our culture. Like everyone's not having the weekend at the same time, basically. Yeah, for sure. Yes. This conventional 40 hour work week that maybe our parents had this Monday to Friday, nine to five, it really does feel like a thing of the past. Basically, you you kind of never know when people are working anymore. Don't you find this? I find like if yeah. I'm contacting someone, I'll get, oh, to, you know, I'm off this Wednesday, but I'm working Saturday or I'm, you know, not working Thursday. I work every second Friday. Like, and I've had that myself and my, I'm working, actually working in a podcasting company and I was working four days a week and then it shifted to five and then some, some weeks it's three. And that's also a real result of contract work, right? This shift from full-time staff salaried positions to contracts. Yeah. And that affects us on a, a cultural level. Like it's, if you can't, you can't make, hang out with your friends if you guys aren't off at the same time, or you can't do things as a group if everyone's working different days of the week. Yeah, there's not a kind of collective experience of the week, right? Yeah. Like what is, 
what is our shared time off when everyone is on a different calendar. Yeah, it really does change the kind of social fabric of our communities for sure. So we're working more on the weekends, but any other things that have encroached onto the weekend that makes the weekend like you know, your son's like, man, was that it? Like, what, <laughs> what else is happening besides work? Well, I, I mean, you know, I, I think secularization is a big piece of this, right? Like we, that idea, and I think whether you're a religious person or not, it's kind of a beautiful concept that there's a time in the week where you can sw- hit an off switch and remember who you are outside of your work identity. And of course, without a religious motivation for that, it becomes, you know, it's no longer an edict and it's no longer even a, a kind of social norm. So we lose something in terms of the our kind of spiritual self. I really think that, and I don't mean that in a necessarily an organized religion way, but that that kind of space in which to ponder and wonder and just be kind of in the world, you know, and rather than in the workplace or even so mentally distracted and mentally kind of compromised or like compartmentalized that you can no longer kind of just be in the moment. So I I think that's one thing that's happened with the advent of a more secular world. I think technology is what we keep circling here and maybe haven't kind of said out loud, which is just that having our offices in our pockets is a completely different way to work, to live, to live and to work, right? And life and work, that line between the two is pretty much non-existent now. And of course, we lived this to its fullest during COVID when many people were working from home and literally had their workplaces in their bedrooms. So, you know, where are those boundaries between workspace and personal space? They literally don't exist for many of us anymore. And, but there's an expectation to, I think, that comes with this moment of total availability like t- and total commitment to work. This is a status symbol. To be busy, to be overworked, it still has a lot of currency. And that's something that I've always been kind of interested in, like, why are our identities? And actually, I think for men, maybe for your listeners, this is something that they are probably thinking about, like that success and acquisition, workplace status. Now I hear a lot about legacy from the older men that I know. And all of these things are bound up to work, not necessarily bound up in the same way to our accomplishments as human beings, you know, how loving of a parent or a partner or how valuable a member of the community, but, you know, how much money did I make? How far did I advance in my, in my workplace, in my work life? And I think that this kind of fetishization of success, which is ongoing now for a long time, is another one of the big pieces of, of why we lost the weekend or decided that it wasn't a priority anymore. And, and for me too, when I'm not like working, there's also, I feel like Saturdays are like the catch-up day. It's where you do, like my wife and I, we call them doodads. It's like you do all the stuff like the admin, life admin, pay bills, fix things, go to Home Depot five times because you always forget the one thing. Or then you're like taking kids to sports and when Saturday's over, you're like, man, that that was not fun. Yeah. Don't feel refreshed. No. I mean, the two most common things that people do on weekends are, are shopping and chores. 
right? <laughs> Which is, I don't think either of those things are necessarily, I mean, sometimes shopping can be fun, I suppose, for some people, but neither of those things are, as you say, a lot of fun. Yeah. And kids, I think in busy families and the scheduling of kids, kids are so, I, you know, overscheduled. This was something I really, my kids are getting older and I, and of course COVID, but one thing I've really noticed is how much time I have back because they're more independent and I don't have to hover as much and do as much schlepping of the children. And that is those kinds of things really do eat up a weekend and it's what we have to be on guard against or the whole weekend could go like in the blink of an eye. Yeah. I mean, you talked about in the book with your experience, like your I guess your kids play hockey and that just seems like, man, that seems like so time intensive. You know, all the equipment you got to buy and then like you got to be early at the games. And that was something you struggled with. Like your weekends were eaten up by hockey games. I'm sure a lot of parents who their kids play soccer or baseball can relate to that as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm in Canada, so it's hockey, but everyone, I think everyone with kids has some version of this. Yeah, it it was an issue for us so much that actually we made a decision or in our, you know, one that our son in particular was happy to go along with and our daughter who also plays hockey, which was we're sticking with house league because we dipped a toe into the world. You know, this is, I think, actually like where we see a transposing of some of the things we were just talking about, about this urge for success and status. I think a lot of that is kind of being projected you know, with the best of intentions, mostly, onto the lives of kids. So playing house league isn't really enough. Like, we got to get the kids the private coaching and the weekends away and they're in select or they're in more competitive tiers with more games, more practices, driving them in and out of the city. I mean, those those are like the true hockey parents will be up at 4 a.m. during the week and then we're and then it's hockey all weekend. And, you know, I think there are kids for whom that is, it's a passion that can't be denied. I'm not suggesting that anyone, you know, punish their children unduly or whatever. But if you're a family where this is taken over, it might be really good to look at it and just say, is this the childhood that I want my kids to have? Because there usually does come a point in adolescence, many of these kids are going to burn out they're not going to take pleasure in it anymore. They're going to notice that it's been kind of professionalized and that the measure of their engagement is is about succeeding rather than playing and taking joy in it. And I think it can be kind of an infection in families, this, this high level overachievement. So what we did eventually, and maybe it's also just some kind of laziness. I don't know. You can judge me if you want. was like, we said house league only. Like we just can't, we don't want to live like that. And it bought us back some time, which I think was worth it. I think it was worth it, but maybe you should ask my, my son. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. 
So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. And now back to the show. So let's talk about how we can take back our weekends because you highlight research. You know, if, if you want to, if you're worried about like, okay, if I take two days off, this is going to like, I'm going to get behind in work. I'm going to set myself up for failure. If you're a business owner, it's like, man, if I... If I don't, if I can't reach my employees during the weekend, uh, this, we're going to fall behind in the competition. The research shows that that's not going to be the case. In fact, working more hours, there's a declining benefit. Like at a certain point, there's just uh, diminishing returns on on working. Long hours without breaks introduce errors. It can cost companies money, and on a personal level, of course, there's burnout and health, and all of those expenses are often incurred by employers, ultimately, right? And countries with really long work hours report depression and high, high suicide rates among, among their workers. So yeah, like 40, 40 to 50 hours is pretty reasonable. Above that, people will start introducing errors into their work. And it doesn't mean that they'll be making less, more widgets if they're working 60 hours a week. It means they're probably making less and more of them will be of low quality, whatever those widgets are. And, you know, fatigue and, and overwork are often causes of medical malpractice suits. The Challenger space crash had an element. There was a, you know, the cause, there's an element of, of fatigue in there. Oil spills, like all, like we, we, we see over and over that there are serious ramifications for overwork that employers will, will bear out and not to mention the, you know, personal and the, social toll of climate in which people are expected to work to the point of utter exhaustion. So yeah, productivity is not actually that closely tied to number of hours worked. Okay, so you make the case, one of the things you can do to start making your weekends more refreshing, enjoyable, reviving is one thing you should make your focus your weekend is it's all about connecting. So what are some ways that you've added more social connection in your weekends? I mean, one thing we really know about the erosion of the weekend is that it coincides with the kind of erosion of personal and social connections. And when we look at what makes people happy, it's actually not the things that correlate with work, right? So it's not a higher salary. It's not success. Yes, I think they say, what is it, $70,000 a year? That's a salary at which people will be able to maintain a decent lifestyle and also their anxiety will be assuaged, anxiety about money. Anything below that, of course, will affect happiness. But say you have a kind of average, decent salary and a a decent job. That's not the thing that's going to really affect your happiness. What it is, is your connections to other people, right? Your social life, who you've loved, who loves you back, how much you matter in your community and to the people around you. Our happiness is intrinsically bound. It's a sense of belonging, right? Not wealth, not status. And if we don't have time, it's very, like, it's kind of a simple equation. If we don't have time to strengthen those bonds, then we are less happy. 
and less fulfilled as people. So yeah, on the weekends, I usually, when there's not a pandemic on, would try to see see somebody outside of my family for sure. Just make sure that I'm checking in on people, remind myself, and I tend to be kind of introverted, that being introverted is not necessarily the best way to move through the world. And also to give something back to my community if I can. So periodically we'll try some kind of volunteer exercise or just engage in a community meeting or I do, I'm involved with a a writer's group where we do workshops in underserved communities with doing creative writing exercises. And these things are kind of small and maybe sometimes they feel, um, you know, or they might seem from the outside like meaningless gestures, but they kind of give me a like profound sense of value. And and then I have like a kind of physical buzz. Like there is something, you know, a, de- a definite correlation, biological connection between altruism and feeling good. Like you get like a rush, right? Don't you think? I think from, so. Yeah. F- from doing things for other people, right? Coming yeah. out of yourself a bit. Yeah, no, yeah, for, for sure. Yeah. And you, know, you also talk about, you know, for people who are religious, the weekend is they have like a baked in social connection. Because if you're, you're a Christian, you're going to go to church. You're a Muslim, you're going to go to mosque on Friday. If you're Jewish, you're going to temple. And they've got that there. But you also highlight people like non-religious people. You gave an example. There's like, you found this group, maybe like secular humanists who they'd get together at a Panera Bread and uh, they just chat about pretty much anything. Yeah, that's right. I lo- I love that group. Well, yeah. So here's the, uh, an upside of technology. It's like you can kind of find anyone who shares an interest that you have, right? Like they're the meetups and social media and Facebook. And if you can migrate some of that online connection into real world connection, hobbies are a really great place to meet people. And hobbies, I think, are one of the other, the, another kind of collateral damage of the erosion of the weekend. We have a lot less, people seem to have fewer hobbies than we used to. And hobbies are fantastic for that, again, that feeling of coming out of yourself and hitting that kind of flow state, like that deep immersion in any activity that's not monetized. It's not for profit or personal gain or status, but just something that you love and lose yourself in. That feeling, that hitting that kind of flow state and you know, falling down into something. And if you're doing it in a room of people, other people who are into this thing too, even better, right? Like I know that like in where I live, there used to be a whole bunch of knitting clubs and people really love this stuff. Then, you know, you, it kind of awakens something in you that's sort of spiritual, that's definitely creative. I think definitely pulls our humanity forward and reminds us that we are people outside of work, our identities aren't just tied to our workplaces and our work selves, that we are uh, fully fleshed humans. Right. So make connection the top priority. If you go to church, go to church. If you don't do that, find a group or even just like use it the time, like just connect with your family or reconnect because you guys have been crazy all week going to different places. Just have a day where we're just going to hang out. Like we're not going to have anything planned, but we're just going to be around each other. Yeah, yeah. I think not having anything planned is a really great phrase. And I'm glad you reminded me of that because I I do think this compulsion to schedule even our leisure, (laughs) and I'm a little bit guilty of this myself, where I'll be like, well, I have to work out, or I, you know, everything becomes an obligation. But sometimes just 
meandering with your family, you know, if getting in the car or getting over to a park and just being together without an agenda is really powerful. Boredom is really powerful, right? It opens up all manner of kind of pathways in our brains and our hearts. And, but yeah, I think, you know, we can take our families for granted because they're around us a lot these days. (laughs) And so we assume that we're connected with them, but we're often, you know, heads bowed over our devices, everyone in their own corners in the same building or same apartment or same house, but not really together together. So taking that time and putting away the devices and and, you know, having a cooking together, doing something active together, you know, is there a sport you would all play or, uh, you know, some kind of physical active engagement with one another, just to remind each other that you're more than just co-workers in a family structure, <laughs> but actually people who's, who you want to spend time with getting to know. And it sounds very uh, basic, but I, I feel like I definitely need a refresher on that sometimes because I can get just so caught up in the panic of, of getting through contemporary life that you forget who's by your side. You mentioned that just get in the car and drive. That was actually a thing. Like on my mom talked about doing that when she was a kid, like the Sunday drive. You, know, you just get in the car and the fit and you just, where, where are you doing? We're just going to drive. In fact, we were, we, we've been reading, uh, we just got done reading Cheaper by the Dozen with our kids. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, classic novel written in the forties. And one of the chapters is about how they, they take a Sunday drive with all 12 of the kids, take a picnic. And that was it. That was like, that sounds, and I, I've oh. done that before. And it just sounds, it's just really relaxing. You don't have a destination you're trying to get to. You just kind of drive around and look around and it, Enjoyable. Yeah, I love that. And also, it doesn't cost too much, no, <laughs> you know, yeah. because I think so often we think we need to pay for our experiences. And that idea of getting in a car and driving, or if you don't have a car, I live in a city. When our kids were younger, sometimes we would get on the subway and go to a neighborhood we'd never been to and just walk around. And it doesn't always mean shelling out to curate a perfect afternoon. Sometimes just spontaneous and cheap and dirty is a way to do it on the weekend for sure. So you mentioned hobbies are a great way to spend the weekend. Uh, so that leads me, you had a chapter about recreation and you make this case that oftentimes when we think about recreation, we do it wrong. There's, you said there's two types of recreation. There's passive and active recreation. And you, t- you argue mostly when we choose recreation, we go with passive. So what's the difference between passive and active and why should we choose active over passive? Yeah. So, I I mean, passive recreation is you kind of know when you're doing it. It's the kind of what we do when we tune out and kind of, you know, binge watch a series or just check out kind of emotionally or, and physically the, one of the phrases that someone used for this was spectatoritis watching, you know, watching rather than doing, which is great. Like we all need that sometimes, but if that is, if you're kind of operating at such an amped up level all the time. And then when you have that downtime, you just unplug completely and kind of crash into that mindless consumption of, of entertainment or sports or whatever it is. Um, you actually don't come out feeling super rejuvenated, right? It's kind of like a sugar high, right? It's like eating a lot of chocolate or something like it feels good in the moment, but it doesn't actually help with a reset. 
So active leisure in contrast is something like we've been talking about where you're connecting with people, where you're participating in an activity that's kind of purposeless and not really based necessarily on success or money, but brings you a lot of pleasure and joy. And hobbies, of course, fall, I think, fall really nicely under that idea of active, active leisure where you can be creative and engaged with something and maybe within a community that kind of feeds this part of yourself that often goes really unnurtured during the work week. And you're saying it's okay to do passive recreation, but don't make it all that you do. And you all say, if you're going to do it, do it with somebody else. If you're going to like play video games, if if your kids are going to play video games, make sure they're playing with their siblings or with you even. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think that's nice because it's such a, that's social, right? So you're bringing back in that element of connecting with another person and coming out of the self, but yeah, like, listen, we all need to just tune out and like, you know, have the pint of ice cream and the binge wash or whatever from time to time. But what's sort of alarming is when it becomes the only way in which we unplug. And I think because we, so many of us have so little free time, that's sort of feels like all we, the energy that we have, like that's the most that we can pull off in our free time is that really passive watching, not doing, but it's a, vicious cycle because you actually end up feeling more burnt out at the at the end of it. So I think we have to be as vigilant with our leisure as we are with our work, right? Like we're really, most of us are good workers. We want to do well at work and that's great. But I think we need to shift that emphasis a little bit and become excellent at play as well, you know, and take as much joy and pride in our successes at doing nothing. <laughs> Right. So one thing that happened with weekends, particularly, or now, it's, we use weekends to shop, like you said earlier. But there was a time in our history in America, and I'm, I'm sure the same was in Canada, where on Sunday, they had these things called blue laws, where if you had a store, you had to shut down. You couldn't, you couldn't, there, you couldn't shop on Sunday. It wasn't an option. You make the case that you might get something out of your weekend if you sort of institute a personal blue law day. Uh, where you don't do any shopping. How has that made your weekends, or how can that make your weekends better? Yeah, well, you know, we're talking about a kind of like late stage capitalist condition, right? This this lust for work, this veneration of work. And of course, work is tied to consumption, right? It's, it's been called by economists, the work spend cycle. We work a lot so that we can spend a lot And then because we've spent a lot, we have to work more. So we go round and round on the hamster wheel. So breaking that pattern, that neural pathway is, I think, really important to, again, to just be reminded that there's a larger world out there. So if we don't engage in the shopping and the consumption on the weekend, then we get that space back. We get the time back. And that's so much, you know, that I think if there's anything that people might get out of this book, I would hope that it's a kind of like fierce impulse to protect their time. And consumption, does it make us happier? 
I don't think so. I certainly haven't seen any research that suggests that buying more stuff fills the hole that, that many of us have inside. So maybe don't for a while, take a break for a couple of weeks, see what's, you know, there are lots of these experiments online when people will talk about, you know, not shopping for for two days or a week and seeing what it feels like. And I think we're all so, you know, mildly addicted to consumption that it can be quite a shock to our systems and all these other ways of being in the world might open up if we break that habit. So yeah, I think it's a, a really neat idea to try and create recreate your own blue law day here and there if you can swing it. Yeah, I hate shopping because it's the time factor. <laughs> Even online shopping, it doesn't save you any time because especially if you buy clothes and you're like, well, I got this doesn't fit. I got to take it back. And he's like, well, I got to box this up. I got to drive over to UPS or some totally. Amazon. And it's just like, uh, I'd rather just, I don't even, books are the one thing I buy where I, I enjoy a book. That's, right. It does feel like books online, at least you're in like it's words. You're already in a word kind of world yeah. online. So it makes sense. But yes, I totally agree. And God, the online shopping, again, this borderlessness, right? Like at least with shopping before, we used to have to leave our houses to do it. So we would be, we'd at least be sort of outside. But now, you know, you can literally go back and forth between working and spending in a two minute period without leaving your chair. And I do feel like it's dangerous and becomes sort of habit forming and yeah, sucks up all of that time. All right, so try not to shop or at least do less shopping on the weekends because that'll, that'll free up some time for you. Uh, you also recommend trying to tame the amount of chores you do on the weekend because for a lot of people, the weekend can easily turn into just doing chores and that's it. Uh, and you can do that in different ways. One way is spreading the chores out throughout the week or if you got the budget for it, maybe outsource some of your chores. So overall, the advice is take time to connect, engage in active recreation, and then limit shopping and chores. So how do you approach your weekends in a way so that you, you feel like you're getting the most out of it, but it doesn't become another project and you feel like, oh, I, I didn't do this weekend right because I didn't allow enough time for spontaneity and relaxation. <laughs> so so how, do you, like, how do you avoid that while getting the benefits of a good weekend? Yeah. I mean, listen, I certainly don't want to turn the weekend into a, a, another fail feeling of failure for people. I don't think there is a one way to do the weekend. But I, I think making that space, that space physically, like Noticing if that calendar is filling up, being, being really thoughtful in the week leading up to the weekend to say, what is this weekend? Like, what's the balance of my weekend here? Yes, of course, we're probably all going to have a bit of work to do, but what's the balance? Like, am, is it, am I looking at like a, a day and a half of work or work every hour? Can I log off for 24 hours straight and then do something on that second day? But just above all vigilance really about how precious this time is, how fleeting it is. It's funny, when I wrote this book, my son was, I think, 12 or, you know, was published, he was probably 13. And now he's finished high school. <laughs> and a lot of the concerns that, you know, I have a daughter who's still in high school, but I, you know, was really plagued by when I was writing this aren't really relevant to us anymore. And I have never once sat around and said, gee, I really wish we had done select hockey and I had done more chores that year. 
you know, like all I think now is, oh God, that time is gone and I can't get it back. So I, I would just say those weekends, if you're lucky enough to have a work life that gives you those two days to guard them, to look at them with the same as a kind of a sacred space, the way that religious people look at an actual Sabbath, you know, to, to approach them with the same kind of sense of honoring that time and making the most of it with as kind of clear eyed and not being hard on yourself, but really taking it seriously that this time is going to go and this is your life. And is, is your life going to be filled with experiences and other people and joy and love and laughter and all those cheesy things? Or is it going to be, I got a really big paycheck and I never turned my phone off. (laughs) Maybe somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. Well, Katrina, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Yeah, well, the book is available everywhere, I hope. Uh, it's called The Weekend Effect. And my website is www.katrinaonstead.com. Fantastic. Well, Katrina Onstead, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. My guest today was Katrina Onstead. She's the author of the book, The Weekend Effect. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Make sure to check out our website at katrinaonstead.com where you can learn more about her work. Also check out our show notes at awm.is slash weekend where you can find links to resources where we delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you'd think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Remind you to listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. <laughs>